Warp Zone, the podcast on sci-fi, philosophy, religion, politics, gaming, and anything else taboo. Taboo! Hey, we are zooming our way into your airwaves and back after a long hiatus due to COVID. Um, I'm Ben Bernatsi. And babies. I'm Tara Smith. Mm. Yep. Uh, And yes, and babies as well. So COVID, babies, business failures, business resuscitations, uh, economics units that uh, one of us likes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, What else? What else has been going on? Mm. Not much, really. Just work, lots of teaching and Zoom meetings. And it was a busy, (laughs) busy last semester. Yeah. Um, This episode is going to be about um, the Hasidic... Uh, Jews, the the Haredi. Um, but before we get on to that, um, what about what? Uh, just give a quick recap, I guess, of what we've been doing the last three months. Is that how long it's been since our last pod? I think we did one midway through. I have vague memories. Do we do one in March or something? Uh yeah, something like that. It was. It, it's been a long time though since it we have. Um, done stuff so we did one yeah. there was one post hannah hannah had arrived so there was yeah that. agreed that was the end of march yeah we are now okay. the end of june it's three months so three months mm. yeah so really a semester has been and gone yeah. um Not that's that been my matter anymore because you know universities don't exist really so yeah, yeah it's true it's, it was a hectic really hectic period of like trying to scramble online without much instruction, but I'm glad that we got there in the end. Um, it's very sad that the humanities look like they're going to be defunded. Um, it makes me really angry, but you know, what can we do? Um, but it's been a yeah busy period of just marking zoom seminars, procrastinating my PhD. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, we, that's right. We were going to give updates of how many words we'd written at different points. Yes. I, I wrote a chapter. So I wrote, I've written about 8,000 words. That's all really at the moment. Um, but I have transcribed all my interviews, which is really good. So 12 interviews have been transcribed. Um, and I have finished tagging all my data, which took a long time. Um, because I tried to tag it on SurveyMonkey and then the tags did not transport to the Excel, so I had to redo them all. So all 400 oh, questions. Yeah, it was a real pain in the ass, but it's just easy to work with data in Excel. Like, it's really difficult. I find the – I know the SurveyMonkey will, like, create um, certain data sets for you, but it's hard to – I find it hard to compare and contrast answers. So, you know, if you answered this on one – what did they answer on that and stuff? So it is easy, I think, to do that on Excel and make the graphs yourself. Mm. So that's what I've been doing. Um, but it was really time consuming because I had, you know, I've got 400 questionnaires with 13 questions each. And most of that is actually qualitative data. So I've had to try and make ways and shortening it to make it more, yep. you know, fit into graphs. But then, you know, it's really difficult because you're like, well, you want to try and have limited amount of tags. So you've got more interesting. So try not have five categories of certain things, but then you're like, some of them don't fit in the mold. So do you like make them to fit into that or not? So it's like, we just didn't really learn. I didn't learn much of this stuff at university. Like I've never done much on data analysis or social. I mean, they're sort of sociological and sort of skills really, aren't they? In interviews and, you know, how to write good qualitative, you know, the difference between qualitative and quantitative data and stuff. I don't know if you did it in your undergraduate, but I really did not. No, 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 no. I think that the, that's the whole point of having people do like project plans and those sort of things. But really, there's not enough time to do those because you're learning other stuff. You know, university is so packed out now because no one's doing single stream courses. Everyone's doing these multi multidisciplinary courses and you have to do yeah. courses, you know, at other things. Um, that's true. Yeah. You're moving around a lot. <laughs> I noticed that Zoom, so we're, we're facing, for the listeners at home, uh, we're, we're facing each other and, and uh, Tara has um, the background of, um, what's his name? I- Iguero. Uh, I, I can't remember. I can't remember it's the, something. The, the three yeah. kind of baddies on Princess Bride. Um, He's not a baddie. 
Oh yeah. no, they're not. They start off as baddies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're using that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my name is something something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure yeah. Tom knows it. If I called him over, he'd come tell us. But I can't be bothered. Um, <laughs> no, I'm moving around because I'm on the couch. So oh. that's why. I, okay. I was at my desk, but now I am reclining. So that's funny. So you, you've moved the camera. I haven't even noticed because the, the background is static. Whereas I've I've got the um, the awesome background of my stuff. See, the no, couch. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, things are being generally okay. I'm glad semester's over. So I really need to concentrate more on the PhD because um, there's some postdoctorate positions I'm, I'm planning on going for for next year. So mm. I really want to get it finished sooner rather than later, even though I'm getting the six months extension. I still want to try and get it finished because the sooner I finish, the sooner I can apply for positions really. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yep. And I know, yeah, what's been going on for you, Ben? I had a business that failed and then I had a business that was rescued. <laughs> uh, yep. So uh, I think I gave an update last time about like staffing levels and how bad things were and everything was at home and we didn't know what was happening. Um, last week we restarted the tournaments in store. I've changed the complete layout of the store. I laid carpet in the store, did some upgrades. The staffing level is like a third of what we had previously. Um, but good news is this month is actually being really good. Um, and the projection is it looks pretty good for the, um, the rest of the you know, next three months at least um, with the release schedule of certain cards and things which are coming out. Um, a lot of that has to do with my price structure. I lowered my prices a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So basically halving my profit, but I quadrupled my sales on certain items. So that basically is a double of profit really um mm -hmm. but yeah every cent i've got is gone back into the business so whilst i get job keeper myself personally so it's the first time i've taken money out of the business or had the opportunity to take money out of the business i haven't done that i've just put it back into the business um you know buying stock or whatever um yeah yeah the important thing is like just making sure customer orders are done um and then having stuff for tournaments um and players that return to the store so having a lot of stock so we just like people come in and they're like wow look how much stock you've got yeah i get this and this and this and then we replenish it straight away um the next week without any questions and then making sure that the suppliers are on top of um and yeah that that requires a lot of fine tuning um so mm -hmm. basically i'm full-time manager of my store and owner um, as well as bookkeeper. Um, and then I do stock management and stuff at night as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot. Um, it's like 18 hour days, basically six days a week at least. Um, the seventh day I'll just do like eight hours, you know, at night. So yeah, that's a Saturday. So it's not Great. You guys came over and you saw like the mess of trying to look for a bloody card order going through boxes and folders and stuff. Yeah. So that, it that's all. It's pretty awful. Yeah. So that's back at the store now, all that stuff, which is good. Um, and we've got some help um, with um, some extra casuals that I've put on. So they're, they're helping tackle that sort of stuff. And so I'm actually getting on top of other things now and being able to branch out into other lines like importing all of Japan. So... <laughs> Um, basically I go to a couple of websites which export and I click on all of the things and say yes send it to me and then it comes in really big boxes which annoys Jody to no end and then yeah we go through like it. What, what sort of stuff are you ordering from Japan? Oh Game Boy, Game Boy Advances, shitload of games, figures, um, everything yeah all that that retro sort of stuff because if you can't like I can buy consoles and actually be able to sell them for a profit at what the market sale rate is in Australia. Whereas in Australia, I can't get them anywhere. I just can't get those consoles because mm. not only COVID, but everyone has seen the value of re of retro and you've got these people buying it at those, re at those, you know, base retail rates. So say $150 for a Game Boy Advance. Yeah. Um, they buy it and they're trying to sell it on Facebook marketplace for 200 bucks. Yeah. 
Like, I, and I can't then sell it for 200 um, because then it's going to keep pushing the price up further and further and further. And that's detrimental for me in the long run. So I need to keep trying to sell it low. Um, yeah, but I need a, a, a supply line. So my supply line now is Japan directly. But the only way to do that is to buy like 3K worth of stuff at a time and then pay for yeah. a bulk, bulk postage. Um, and because of that, I end up with these massive big boxes of 25 kilos worth of stuff and you open it up and it's just like, you know, sunshine and happiness all over our lounge room. Um, yeah. Or as, as Jody prefers to call it, fucking shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's good. It's, it's fun. I like that sort of stuff. I like retro games. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it makes sense that you're kind of specializing in that because I mean, like people can, you got to look at ways, I guess, to differentiate your store from other gaming stores, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's probably why we won't get the PlayStation five in store. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to get it. I don't think so. $850 <laughs> is the sell price. We are going to make yeah. $20. Wow. Well, yeah. $20. It's, um, it's an, Ugly looking console. Yeah, <laughs> it, it looks, looks like some early Star Wars Stormtrooper. <laughs> or it looks like the best thing I saw. Someone's like, oh, do you like my PlayStation 5? And they put a white folder around a PlayStation 2. <laughs> so it just like shoved the PlayStation 2 in a white yeah. folder. Like, yeah, look, Amazing. PS5. And, and it looks exactly like that. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty happy with my PS4 and the Switch. I've been playing the Switch quite a lot. Like yeah. a lot. Animal Crossing is so good. addicted. Yeah, Switch is very good. Um, I'm getting back into Game Boy Advance now, so I've been playing that. Mm-hmm. With Zaya. He's he's actually playing uh, Mega Man games, which are, I don't know if you've played Mega Man games, but they're very they cartoony. They look very cute, but they're fucking mm-hmm. hard. Like, you die straight away. And he's just playing it going, ah, oh, dying straight away. <laughs> it's not good because I like these, you know, I like these cutesy sort of shooters, but they're really hard. Um, yeah. I'll sit down with him and then remember, oh, actually, yeah, this is probably not the right game to play with him. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, that's funny. Bang, bang, dead, 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 should I? Um, yeah, we should do an episode on Animal Crossing now that I'm playing a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd like to actually talk about that and um, maybe uh, Stardew Valley as well, like, and maybe just a farming simulator type of game. Uh, like yeah, well, I, I couldn't get into the other one, but I, yeah, I definitely can talk a lot about Animal Crossing. I couldn't get into Stardew Valley. Uh, I tried to play it for like, you know, a couple of hours and just didn't really win me over. Um, yeah. I really like the graphics in the new new one, but I have heard a lot of people saying that um, New Horizons isn't as good as the the one before that, New Leaf. I think new Leaf. Leaf was, new Leaf was new very Leaf. good. Yeah. New Leaf was, um, yeah, it, it looked really good. It was a wonderful game. Um, yeah. I played that a lot. When I went over to um, overseas, I played that. Um, on the flight over and flight black back and stuff. And yeah. there was also the pass system, like with the 3DS, you get bonuses when you're passing anyone with another 3DS, whereas they don't oh, have cool. that with a switch. Yeah. Um, so you got like this bonus thing of just passing people with other islands for new leaf. So yeah. I think that's, that that's missed a little bit, but you can visit other people's islands. So it's kind of, it's better in one regard, but not better in the other. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like the 3DS no, definitely do. It's a good, it's a good system. But yeah, that would be good. I'd like to do that. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, uh, I have more anything arcade. Anything else? Machines. I bought, I bought arcade machines for the store. For, oh yeah. Yeah. Which ones? So, I have two sit-down cabinets now, and I have a Neo Geo machine at the store. So that's three cabinets. I've got mm-hmm. another one turning up. So that's four. So three sit-downs, one Neo Geo, and then I also have. Um, exclusive for the podcast, ooh, um, <laughs> the centipede cabinet. You know my dream cabinet, my little one with like the roll ball, and you the, like yes. this little thing, and you shoot centipede. Yeah, I bought a centipede cabinet, and I oh, might, cool. I may be building a Gallagher cabinet in the next couple of months. That's cool. Where is? Have you got it physically yet, or is it on its way? The centipede. It, it is cabinet. being picked up. As we speak, I'm expecting a, a message from Leo very soon showing a picture of it on a truck. Cool. Well, is it going to be at the store or in your house? At the store. Is there room for all these cabinets? Yeah. Yeah. So how I've set it up and changed things around, we've got, we're going to have five cabinets at the front of the store, three pinball machines, 
underneath the pinball machines is all the extra tables I had to buy because of the double tabling and the whole COVID thing. It's frustrating. Um, yep. So yeah, all of those cabinets will be at the front, all taking $1 coins, all with working buttons and power supplies and everything. It's going to be good. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Um, are you allowed to put tables outside the store yet? I have been the last week and we've got another trial this week. Um, uh-huh. I, I don't know if center management is going to give us that space for good. I hope so, but yeah. we'll have to see. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm really not sure. Mm-hmm. I really hope so. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Anyway. Um, Anything there. else? There's a service actually. Someone's sending me pictures of machines. Um, okay, yes, that is it. Um, you want to talk about Freddy? About what? The, the yes. Mm. Okay, cool. Uh, do you want to go um, historically? So one of us was first, like 2017, and then there's Unorthodox, which came later. Or do you want to yeah. do? No, un- you you want to do like the intro and stuff because you're going to know more about the specifics. I just seen the documentary and um the yeah. movie, the series, and then the interview. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. So, um, if you don't know um about Hasidic Judaism, um, basically it's a um a cult or a sect of Judaism, um, which came out of Eastern Europe, um, and became formalized particularly after the Holocaust, um, where Jewish people um, escaping from Eastern Europe um, and surviving uh, settled mostly in Brooklyn. um, And uh, they formed a a strong, tight-knit community who dressed um, purposely um, in um, 18th century Eastern European dress, so uh, long black coats and large hats for men, uh, covered hair for women um, or wigs um, or both um, and um, dressing very modestly uh, and speaking uh, Yiddish. Um, so that community has is a closed off community and there's been a number of documentaries. Vice has had a couple of things on, on the, um, the Hasidic communities. Um, but whether there's a film called one of us, which is 2017 that we watched um, not together, but um, at, you know, the same week, um, and distancing and all of that, yeah. Um, and so one of us is about um, three uh, Jewish um, ex-Haredi uh, Jews. So they've escaped from the community. Um, and there's Luza, uh, Tuesky, um, uh, Eti uh, Aush, and Ari Herskovich. Um, and they, they reveal certain things about the community. Um, a lot uh, is quite disturbing, um, about how they were treated. Uh, and there's, there's certain sequences where they meet up with ex members and stuff. Um, the, the big reveal, I guess for spoiler, um, there's, uh, sexual assault um, that took place and was just covered up by the community. Um, particularly for one of the members, uh, and he, he talks about that um, and how that he was treated and how everyone watched and, and knew about it and that those people are still working and um, running camps for the community um, and it just is, is closed off and no one can know about it, which was quite sad. Um, yeah, do you want to talk about unorthodox? Yeah, so I'm just just grabbing up the pages now. So um, Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots is a uh, autobiography written in 2012 by Deborah Feldman. Um, and it's just been recently made into a Netflix uh, mini series uh, released in March called Unorth- Unorthodox. Uh, so uh, the book sort of, uh, she was writing, Deborah was writing it sort of as she was actually leaving the community, which was quite interesting. So mm. the book was actually a sort of a way for her to kind of get out. And, and they talk about that in, and there was an ABC interview that um, Ben and I both listened to um, on conversations. Uh, I think that was a, released maybe, I didn't get the date on that. I should have remembered. Um, we can probably link it into the. Um, uh, yeah, we will link it into the thing. It was. Uh, 2020. So, um, 2020. 
Oh. Oh, so quite recent. Three days ago. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. Three days ago. June. Um, my bad. 20th of June. Uh, so there you go. 20th of June. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that uh, interview was with uh, Deborah. Um, and yeah, so she wrote the the book as she was sort of leaving the community and and the uh, mini series differs quite a little bit from her story so it's based off her story but it's sort of um it kind of up to a certain point takes on its own version of the narrative I th- and I think the reason behind that is to sort of keep a little bit of distance between Deborah's real life and and the actual series um and we can talk a little bit later about some of those differences um but all the flashbacks that uh, that are happening in Unorthodox, the Netflix series, uh, are from Deborah's account. Uh, so th- there is a lot of authenticity there. And there's been a few interviews with people, um, you know, from that community and who have left the community about Unorthodox and, and them being quite um, impressed with the authenticity and and that. And what was also really interesting is just the uh, emphasis on on the Yiddish being spoken and not the sort of Yiddish that, was maybe spoken in universities, but the actual real life living and breathing sort of Yiddish that Deborah actually was speaking in the community, which I think is really cool and really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think and, right. yeah. that that authenticity for um, Netflix series because we spoke about um, was that Nazi Hunter? Um, oh yeah, Mind Hunter. Yeah, so that that series being slammed because there's no truth to it, and actually there's a lot better stories to tell which are true but there was an artistic Mm. license that was taken um and it turns out that that's taken for something really which is is sacred for a community um you know you can't you have to treat the death of so many people quite lightly um which is still felt by a community um and yeah taking that sort of artistic license with with finding your roots and and um fighting for justice um i think is really important um and the same in this regard, there, there is a certain authenticity um, to um, the, the miniseries, I understand. Um, it's funny how her interviewer, she was saying that it really um, she's, um, she still regrets how that's not proper Yiddish in her book. Yeah. As, as the Yiddish she grew up with. Um, it's more of that older Yiddish which was then accepted into universities and then taught at university levels um, yeah um she says she was sort of strong-armed by the publisher you know because this was her first novel she was very fresh out of the community that she didn't really stand up for herself and say oh no this is the type of Yiddish that I actually really want spoken and I think that maybe the publisher was worried that people wouldn't be able to recognize it but I I hardly see that as being a major issue because most people well you know there's few people that actually speak Yiddish so I don't know it seemed like a strange difference I mean outside of you know Jewish communities and yeah I don't know I just thought it it's a shame that it wasn't the authentic Yiddish that she she'd grown up with I think that would have been good yeah I agree I I agree yeah Uh, Hmm. so that's the sort of what we're talking about mostly though is going to be one of us and the interview because Ben hadn't had a chance to see the Netflix series but I can talk a little bit about that as well um they're all sort of very, I mean, unorthodox and also one of us, very similar premises and very similar idea, except for one's a documentary and one's autobiography. So, yeah. you know, yeah. lots of similarities. Well, yeah. So what did you think of the story arc, I guess, with the um, the documentary? I, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, it was very kind of scattergun approach. Like you've got, sort of it was very like back and forth which I thought was was interesting I I was very I felt very sad I, I didn't think it really looked much at the positives of that community I think that was kind of missed a little bit it was a bit yeah. expose kind of like although you did get a lot of remorse from them after they left and I did think it was interesting that that the younger guy I've forgotten his name what was his name Ben the young man Lisa. Not the actor, the real, like the 15, 16 year old, whatever his name was. Uh, Lerza. Lerza. But he actually went back, right? He went back. Oh, Lerza's, Lerza's the actor, sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, what was the other guy that the, was abused when he was younger? Ari. Ari. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Ari went out, he had this great experiences outside, and he, you know, he was such a curious person about religion, and he, he wasn't getting that kind of debate and be able to discuss those things that he really wanted and so you you know you get this impression that he's left and really found himself you know struggled with 
drug abuse and everything. But what was interesting is just towards the end of the series, he actually goes back to community. Mm. Right. I mm-hmm. thought that was, that was, I mean, sorry if it's spoilers, but I mean, like, you know, I, it's going to be hard for us not to spoil the endings, I think, of the characters, right? Well, yeah. the, pe- the people. So I, I thought that was quite surprising, but you do get the impression that, that there's a huge sacrifice made when people leave those communities. And, and you get that a lot in the mini series, uh, like the Netflix series too, is just that how kind of supportive in a way also those communities are, you know, if you're sick, yep. everyone in the neighborhood would bring food to your door you know everybody would would care about you and check check in on you so there's I think I would have liked more of that in the series is looking at some of the positive more of the positive aspects but sorry this is in the documentary but I think obviously people in the actual community probably don't want to speak to you know documentary series or you know want to talk about the benefits of it do they like much (laughs) oh there's there's a um a, a deep concern about what the uh, outside world has to offer and the risk that that has for the community members, because it is not only an ultra orthodox um, religion and an orthodox ultra ultra orthodox community, but it's an orthopraxic community. So all members have to do the same thing at the same time, um, and that's what is expected, and that includes you know the the aspects of modesty, following the Talmud and the Torah. Um, and following the laws as as dictated to um, and under the understanding of their rabbis, the concerns is there. Um, you know, you've got technology and you've got other languages, and then you have um, different aspects of the outside world, which is a risk to the community because then you can be accepted into the outside world, and if you get accepted out into the outside world, then you might be convinced to do other things um, and your mission in life as a Jew, uh, according to the Haredi and the, the, um, you know, the, the particular ultra-Orthodox sects that we're talking about, is that you have to breed and you have to learn Torah as a man. Mm. That's it. That's, that's your rules. That's your laws. And then um, is it Deborah that speaks about um, how uh, in the podcast where there's the missions that's given to um, the Jewish people after the fall of the second temple that you can't go and retake the land. The land is to be given to the Jewish people at some point. So this is why mm-hmm. the, um, the Haredi and the ultra-Orthodox don't actually serve in the Israeli defense force or the police force in Israel, even though it's the fastest um, growing population in Israel as well. Um, and they do so because they don't see it there as their right to retake that land. That land should be given to them. Um, And they also have to follow the rules of outside communities. Um, And then they have to differentiate themselves. And this is a way that they differentiate themselves, that they're speaking another language in an English country, an English speaking country. Um, And they're keeping separate that way. So, being on camera and being interviewed and being in, you know, speaking English and dealing with the outside world, that's not following those three rules. You know, mm, that's, yeah, that no, definitely. time should be spent better. Um, mm. And I think yeah, that, and, that and, I'm sorry. And Deborah makes that really good point about um, to do with the not, not knowing the numbers of how many people are in that mm. community because a lot of that community wouldn't want to be put on a censorship or, or have their details recorded because yeah. there's so much fear and anxiety around what happened during the Holocaust with, you know, lists and names and records, you know? So I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah. Like I hadn't thought about that, you know, and I, and you get through all of these, through the, through one of us, through all the unorthodox documentaries and things that just how um, much of an impact the Holocaust had, had on them, but not only that, but the, the way it feeds into the narrative of persecution of the Jewish people, even prior to the Holocaust, that there's this feeling that the Jewish people were made to be this sort of, I guess, yeah, persecuted against for this promise in the future that, that God will deliver. Is it the third temple, fourth temple? Third. Third, the third temple. temple. Yeah, the second temple yeah, destroyed the, by the Romans, first one by Babylonia. That's right. Um, yeah, the, the, the third temple, that there's, uh, that that's what they're waiting for, right? That if yeah. they do these certain things, if they kind of take this persecution kind of uh, like 
I don't know, not on the chin, but you know, like as part of that and work towards this community and live by what God wants them to do, then that this is the reward. That's the idea that I got from it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what they're called to do. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, And then you have Jewish people who are are liberal um, and they are very religious as well. So not the ultra Orthodox, but just the Orthodox Jewish people even um, who deal with the outside world and accept that the, the fall of the temple was an event. Um, but practice has moved away from temple worship and you now have synagogue worship um, in Judaism accepted. And the temple is to be inside your home as well. Um, and these are very conservative people, but they are not conservative enough for the ultra Orthodox. Um, you know, that you, you still should be kept separate. And that's why, you know, it's this very closed off community and you are not considered Jewish if you don't have that bloodline. It's, it's, it's not near impossible actually to convert into um, those type of communities. Um, very difficult to get into the Hasidic communities. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's also variation in the community too. That's what Deborah talks a little bit about, that, that even within the ultra-Orthodox, there's more families that are more ultra-Orthodox than others. And there's Absolutely. some that have, you know, from certain you know, bloodlines and things. And you, and you get the impression that they're trying in some way to replace the Jewish people that were lost during the Holocaust, right? Yes. Through having more children, you know, and they have very large families, seven, eight children to try and I think replace that. And Deborah makes the point that, that it's also, I guess, some sort of psychological thing as well of trying to bring back your family members that were persecuted and died during the Holocaust as well. So, you know, she talks about, I think it's her, her grandmother had, you know, seven Oh no, was it? She was just, I can't remember the exact details, but I got the feeling that she was one of, ten. yeah, one of, one of 10 and yeah. that, that, yeah, that it sort of was nice for her to have so many children to try and replace the sisters and brothers that died. Like, yeah, yeah I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you get those comments, I think from, from grandparents, like I, you know, I don't know that side of my family, but my grandmother, my, my great grandmother, grew up in a very large family and misses her brothers and one died in the war others lost to cancer and, and different things her brothers all died probably of asbestos um poisoning which we don't know like there's just respiratory disease written on their their death certificates but they all died very close together because they used to use asbestos in egypt on the walls to paint the the walls inside the houses and they'd play with it basically like as you know, powdered stuff, 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 and they put it on the walls, and so asbestosis affected them quite heavily. Um, and she talks, and she makes those comments when when my family is around, because I'm one of five, and we've got now five kids in the family, so five grandchildren. She great grandchildren she has, and she loves having children around. And her her family, she she says that that reminds her of how she grew up in her family. Mm-hmm. Like there was always lots of people around. Um, and then it became very lonely for a long time with just her, uh, my mother and my auntie, very small compared to this large family of six, seven. Um, so I can, I can appreciate it and I understand it. Um, and I think you're right that there is this benefit of being part of the community and doing this, um, this life. So the cost is you, as Deborah says, you don't have the opportunity to read C.S. Lewis. You don't have the opportunity to, to um, have friends in the outside world or just, you know, browse a library or, or do certain things which are outside. You know, you, you, the entire work is dictated by the community and, and what is governed mm-hmm. by it. And women particularly um, don't have the opportunity to read and learn and discover the world. Um, I think it's an interesting, um, I guess, juxtaposition of... Um, Deborah um, and um, uh, <clears throat> uh, what do you call it? Um, Etty, or Etty, you mean the Etty. other girl? Etty. Yeah, Etty and, and Deborah. So Etty loses her children, and Deborah keeps her child, her son. Um, yeah, yeah, because both. Yeah, and are- you get the you get the impression that it was education that really helped with that. And that's what I think the community does the women such a disservice and probably also why women stay because it isn't a very, you know, it, for some women, it would be a very difficult. I mean, probably all women is quite a difficult experience. I mean, they're essentially just 
they're yeah, responsible for the family, but they're just really having children. They can't really, they don't really work. They don't, they can't really read. They can't really educate themselves. It's a pretty limited, I would say a limited existence in some respects. Yeah. And so you, you get the um, impression that the reason Deborah was able to leave is she, she, you know, and she talks about having this amazing moment of, you know, when she gives birth to her son of being like, like I got to get out and she stays, she, you know, she makes up stories to her husband that she's not really going, you know, she's doing some bookkeeping course, but she's really doing a literature degree and learning how to be a writer. And she uses this as like an escape plan and, and she gets, she makes friends connections outside of the community. She gets lawyers and she really kind of wins the system because for Etty's experience is that she didn't have that. She wasn't able to educate herself prior she was in an abusive relationship. She had, I was at three children that she, she tried to get out without having all her ducks in a row. And the Hasidic community comes down real hard um, because their children is almost like the currency, not the currency, but the most valuable thing in the community, you know, Absolutely. cause that's their, their lineage. That's the next generation. So they see that as a threat. And, and you see in the documentary, how she, how they send letters and they get funding and it's like a real attack. Um, and they lawyer up and she has no chance and they take the children away, you know, and, you know, which is just so sad because, um, you know, you, you think that, that they'd be able to work out something equal, but they talk about how there's this law in, in America of, is it similar? I can't remember the name where, you know, to keep the environment as similar as possible for the children. So it's not yeah. changing. So they must have, they have the argument that it's more stable for them to be in, within the community. Yeah. Um, and they leave the women with really no weapons, you know, cause she, she hasn't got any money. She's got no contacts outside. She's got nothing, you know? And so it's, it was, it's an unfair battle from the start, isn't it? For her. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, it's funny seeing her, uh, in the synagogue because, um, there's, there's certain things that are missed. I think, um, for those who don't know Judaism and don't study it or whatever, um, she's hugged by someone in, um, like a rabbi garb. Um, who is a woman in the synagogue. So she's she's obviously gone to a, a more liberal um, synagogue, but she's still holding on to faith um, mm. at the end of the documentary. And that's that's what's so sad about the whole thing. Like she doesn't, this isn't a rejection of Judaism, um, uh, both racial, religious, or cultural. It is a rejection of the marriage that she was in and the restrictions that were put upon her by the community. Um, and that's mm. really what Etty's um, issue is. And that's obviously missed by the lawyers that, um, and, and, you know, uh, courts that, that decided um, the basis of the children's separation. Mm. Can uh, you explain the, the difference between temple and the synagogue and, and the difference between, so in the Hasidic community, they don't go to synagogue. Is that right? They have their own synagogue. They have their own synagogue, yeah. separate. But there's obviously a woman can't be like a rabbi, or no. right? In no. the in their community, no. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So seating is different. Seating separated, separated as well. Um, but then there's also going to the synagogue for study. So that means like you're going to, um, you know, the study halls, which are usually attached to the synagogue. You wouldn't do it inside the synagogue place, um, and you're studying Torah there. Um, and that's the images you see sometimes on TV of um, bearded um, boys um, or, you know, with the, the locks um, uh, looking over these old books, yeah, and just um, reading and, and um, doing this rocking back forth motion. Um, so that mm-hmm. studying of Torah, studying of, of law, um, is both the Torah um, on the Tanakh and then the Talmud, um, so the, the books of Judaism inside the synagogue. That opportunity is not given to women in um, Hasidic communities. Yeah, but Forever. is it outside outside of the Hasidic communities? Can women study yeah. or not? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's it depends just... on the community as to whether, like, so Reform Judaism? Yeah, absolutely. Women, um, uh, women, women rabbis, um, women rabbis, um, foreseeing over marriages, uh, and studying Torah. Um, absolutely. That's fine. Um, uh, so the more liberal you get, um, uh, for, for Jewish religions, then yes, it's more looks like, um, for like, as in for Christianity, I guess more for, for Protestant, um, 
uh, religions. But just like in Christianity, where you have orthodox religions, you have, um, so say, uh, Greek and uh, Antiochian orthodoxy, where you have mixed seating of women, and women um, do fill certain roles in the church, but don't um, aren't the head um, priests. There are certain other churches, such as um, Coptic or um, uh, some Russian, um, and, and even actually some Greek Orthodox um, uh, churches, depending on what bishop they follow, will have separate seating for women and men, mm-hmm. and and right. more restricted roles. Um, yeah, and there's there's even some sects of Christian Orthodoxy where women have to have their head covered as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's following an Eastern European um, practice, and it's a cultural practice. It's not um, mm-hmm. quite a religious practice. Um, and then that exists the same way for Judaism, um, in the same way. So there's this almost this rainbow of, of different um, types of uh, Jewish religions. Yeah, I I also thought that like when I was watching, I was like, if only they could just like kind of relax a little bit. These communities, like, just you know, allow women to read and and allow you know women the internet and and like a few things. And then I thought, then why would people remain in the communities? <laughs> and that's the thing that they have to try and control right is because if they think if they let people choose that people probably wouldn't choose to say you know so they have to be very strict on the dress code very strict on who is married in and do you think it's not just about what people are staying it's what people will want the community to change to because if if you can choose whatever dress sense you want then why can you not choose whatever language you speak and then why can you not read whatever you like so Mm. then it becomes this snowball effect and then it ends up with well then there would be no difference between us and them and that's what we're called to do we're called to differentiate ourselves from that other community like by all means agree with the laws and and follow the laws of that community but we are jewish people that's that's their their mindset that um we we need to be separate for the the purity of our religion. So it's not a purity of race, but it's a purity of our religion and our cultural heritage and our, our very own existence, which was sought to be systematically wiped out. And this is where you get the wraparound back to the Holocaust. And it's this constant thing of, well, the answer then is, well, look at this event that happened and how bad it was. Um, there's been academic studies into Hasidic Jewish communities and, and religions that say because of the drop in numbers, there was a chance that ultra-Orthodoxy would not have existed in the modern era if it would not have been for Hitler. Like really? if it would not have been for the wipeout of the Jewish people in Europe, Middle Europe and Eastern Europe in particular, then you know those surviving pockets wouldn't have had a need so much to fight the outside world and the liberalism of the outside world and become more conservative. So it's like a, a snapback almost. Were there any ultra-Orthodox Jewish people before the Holocaust? There was, but there was dropping numbers. Right. Um, so what? the Aish Kodesh, which is a book that I've read about the, um, so it's the, the, holy, um, the holy fire, Aish Kodesh. Um, and it's by a rabbi who um, uh, was writing inside one of the pogroms um, in, um, in, in Europe. And, and he was giving these... Um, you know, these, these, um, uh, sermons. So every, every day of the, on the Sabbath, you give a sermon as the rabbi to the people. Now the sermons, they've been uncovered because they're uncovered in these milk pots, which were buried in the, um, the community after it was destroyed by, um, Hitler, um, afterwards. And in those milk pots, you look at the sermons and the dates are there. So we know what the rabbi was saying at those certain dates and what his sermon was about. And they're all about religion. There's no reference to Nazis. There's no reference to Germans. There's no reference to persecutions in them at all. So everyone thought, well, these words are just, um, you know, they're religious texts. So this is just a rabbi who's just speaking. Oh yeah. Okay. This is the Bible reading of today. This is what it is. But what um, a couple of academics have done is have looked at, um, what is being spoken in the rabbi's words and then the events inside the pogrom at that time. And they find that there is actually this match that is happening between the two. And he's calling for a community to return to the law. 
based upon these these events that are taking place and is referencing with with more and more concern about what's happening and the community he was he wrote previously 10 20 years earlier about his worry that the community is dropping off in numbers and people are turning towards more liberal things like smoking and um, going mm-hmm. to plays and and reading different books and being more integrated into um, you know the cultural aspects of Eastern Europe um, following the Second World War. So, yeah, I, I I think that there is some merit actually to what those academics are saying that there there would have been a higher chance actually of of um, ultra orthodoxy actually not existing if it would not have been for the Holocaust. Mm. It, it exists because it was a, like a punishment, right? A punishment for Jewish people. For do you think that's how they think of it? It's like a yeah. They, 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 they do yes and they say that if we don't do what we're doing then we're going to get something similar and this is the only way we can survive so if this is the only right. way we can survive we have to double down our efforts and actually do it better and we have to be yeah. closed off more and we have to fear the outside world um and yeah because of that then it locks into the community more people can become more adherent towards the law and um then it, it you know just due to the nature of having lots of children it increases the numbers that way yeah mm. oh i like the the de- description about the the hats <laughs> like i've read a lot about the hats so mm. what what's the what's the jewish name for them uh i don't i actually don't know they have a special name but i can't they do have remember why you look that up yeah, yeah. Um, I will keep talking about the hats that they're, they're actually apparently really, really expensive. Yes. <laughs> like, like $6,000 or not that much, but like thousands, thousands of dollars. Cause they're made from like minks and beaver or I don't know, like weird the animal furs. What is it? The stremial. The stremial. Anyway, I thought that was quite funny. And apparently in unorthodox, the series, they couldn't afford to get authentic hats. And like I read a bit of an interview where they're kind of shoot, shoot the um, directors were upset because they couldn't quite get the right hats, but it was just too expensive to get them um, all authentic. Yeah, and she said that they said in the in the interview the only people that would notice would probably be Hasidic Jewish people. They're probably not going to be watching them anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. it's Small compromise. <laughs> yeah, um, but that yeah the the dress is quite funny because you know when you first hit when i first like saw you know or you know ultra orthodox jewish people you assume that it's a a thousand of year dress code or something but it's something that they really just kind of developed after world war ii right to this eastern european wears because it's also really impractical for brooklyn yep. new york to be wearing huge coats except for maybe winter but in summer like that must be quite uncomfortable yeah 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 so while it's a development from 18th 19th century dress um and an adoption of it formally um following holocaust so yeah it is funny um because there is photos of ultra-orthodox jewish people um uh between the first and second world war and even like the, the turn of the century um and they're dressing similar but not exactly the same. And it's just like this formalized dress code now that now this is what we wear and this is what is acceptable. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Like it's a a cool outfit. Like it's, it definitely differentiates them really quickly on the street as who they are. Doesn't it? I mean, there's not really any other religion except for maybe the Amish that's that visually like clear, is it? And that's, that's the whole point. That's, you know, you know exactly who is in the community, who you can trust and who you can't. Um, yeah. That's what it comes down to, really. Yep. And you get that kind of, um, in Deborah's interviews, you get that, that they really looked, like the community really looks at outsiders as, as being, you know, uh, there to uh, oppress, oppress them, right? Like that's yep. the sort of us and them very clearly demarked. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I will have to watch ultra orthodox. Uh, yeah. Unorthodox. Unorthodox. Yes, sorry, mm. unorthodox. I'll have to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry about not watching it. I thought for the readers at home, um, I thought it was a movie, <laughs> and then um, 
It's like, yeah, 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 I can watch it this week. No worries, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, me being me, bite off more than I can chew. Um, yeah, then panicked and I discovered I can't actually watch it all in one night. Shit. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Um, it's really, really good. Really, really well done. And so the way that the stories differentiate, so you know, I won't give too much away, but in Deborah's narrative, she it, it kind of ends when she has the her child but in in the other one it, it extends the narrative so she lives a bit of an alternate life after she gets pregnant and then it, the story quite differentiates um but it's very very well done and it's sort of like a spy thriller too because her husband comes and tries to find her um in berlin and tries to track her down too and mm. um yeah it's quite engaging but um the interview is really good as well with for a bit more context and i haven't read the book but i'm sure deborah's book's really interesting um and it was really nice just to be able to hear so much yiddish being spoken in the um in the netflix series too like Mm -hmm. it's it's such a nice language and and just how devout and you know like the actors look you know as they're reading and they're doing the little um kind of bobbing movement yeah Yeah. (laughs) and the singing and stuff at the wall when I went to the, yeah. the rolling wall yeah you see the ultra orthodox section in there um they sort of separate themselves even in that sort of practice where it's an equal practicing place so you have a rabbi of, of the wall that is there um who's orthodox not not heredia or ultra orthodox and then the ultra orthodox are sort of separated um yeah it's interesting so what would, what is the main differences between like ultra orthodox and orthodox Jewish communities? Like ultra orthodox um, purposefully keep themselves separate. They've got more of a, a connection to bloodline. Um, there is a restriction to convert, um, and there is a restriction of practice inside the house. Technology use is an issue. Um, education is an issue. Uh, service to the community and involvement in government is also an issue as well. Um, support of Israel is interesting. Orthodox support Israel as a as a state formally. The ultra orthodox don't really formally do that because um, they don't see it, it, the right to do so. Um, you know, the the land should be given to them, not. Um, not governed by a um a liberal um government which governs for all um and then there's the the larger families as well with orthodox compared to um orthodox so ultra orthodox basically is is more of everything you know more restrictions um more requirements to adhere to tamaric law um more restrictions on on dress code and then more restrictions on obviously on education and then women's rights as well um, with the Haredi and ultra orthodox in particular, is um, very restricted compared to um, orthodox, and then reformed is is a lot more liberal uh, along the line. Have you ever met anybody that's actually ultra orthodox? Um, very briefly uh, in Israel, um, but that was just like passing. Um, and there's the language difference, which um, I, you know, you can't break through. But no, I haven't actually sat down with anyone. I've conversed with lots of Orthodox people, um, mm-hmm. um, and and lots of Reformed, um, mostly Reformed, but yeah, lots of Orthodox. Um, but ultra Orthodox, no. My my closest, I guess, dealings is is through the Orthodox community, and people that have got connections with ultra orthodoxy. So I don't know if they're ex ex ultra orthodox or not. I haven't asked, but um, yeah, I know that they're, they're definitely interested in it and there's academics in the field that I've conversed with. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Mm. And yeah, I'm trying to think more back on the series. Was there anything else that I thought was particularly interesting? Mm. Yeah, I think just more focus on the benefits of the community would have been more interesting because it did seem a little bit like vice, didn't it? A bit expose-ish, yeah. like, look what they're doing. Ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Um, I mean, there has to be a reason why you've got... Uh, I think Deborah's right. I think I think I don't think that there's 100,000 because that statistic of 100 to 150,000, I gave 
six, seven years ago. Like, there's been growth in the community since then. Yeah. So, like, it's, it's definitely larger. And with the, the, the birth rates and everything, yeah, it's definitely larger. And it's going to continue to get larger and larger. And it is the fastest growing um, community in Israel as well. Uh, <clears throat> not, and they're not directly, I mean, they're, they're somewhat connected, but they're not directly connected um, in that regard. They're autonomous communities, which are run by rabbis. Um, and that's the way that Judaism works. Um, so you don't have like bishops or, you know, archbishops, or yeah. popes, whatever. Um, so, uh, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, that, that, that large community, the numbers. There, there would be a reason why 150, 200,000 people are staying within the religion. Mm. It, it's not, you know, they don't have a police force. Um, forcing them all into this. This is a, a choice that a lot of these people are making and a lot of these people are happy in this, this way. Just like the Amish, like there's people that view the Amish as, oh, they, these people need to be rescued. But the Amish send their people out into the world and then most of them actually return to the community. Yeah, definitely. They, they go on a, a drink, you know, binge or, you know, and discover the world and um, discover that well, liberalism isn't for them. Mm, definitely, but though it, it, I think it would be hard to leave the community though. And as the women in the mm. Deborah shows, is that it is difficult to leave when you have no money or education. Or, oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I I agree. I think there must there's I mean having such a tight knit community must there must be huge benefits too, and you get a real sense of loss with all three people that leave in um in the documentary. Just that what they're losing you know and they they you can't be out of the community and ma maintain in contact you know what i mean like once you're out you are well and truly excommunicated yeah. you basically no longer exist although they do show them coming back but you know it seems like a limited uh yeah, acknowledgement it, of their existence yeah it's it's a doorway conversation sort of thing or street conversation that's what you're having you're not having um sharing shabbats and going to the synagogue together and having you know, communal aspects. Uh, it's funny, actually, in the movie, um, is it Ari or um, uh, one of the men? Um, they went to the wedding together. So that was that was interesting. It, yeah. What wedding? I don't remember. There, there's a, the, in the One of Us, there's a film of the wedding and they're, they're actually in, like there's a, a video and they're in the wedding together. Um, and he's there. Dressed not in the full conservative. Oh yeah, he must have been like a connected family or something like that, and that's why he's got invited. Um, mm. But he's he's feeling on the outer, and you see, it's funny like films how they do these things where they they film like the front and the back and stuff. Um, you know, in front you've got these men with the traditional dress, and there's some liberal. I could see some liberal Jews um, with them as well because they've got different um, um, kippahs and stuff, um, the hats. Um, they're dancing around and they're having so much fun and they're laughing and everything. And there's the young guy in the back, um, miserable. Like <laughs> He's just yeah. not happy in that, that existence as well. And I know like there's obviously direction choices made um, with filming, but I think it's indicative that, yeah, you feel like this, you've, you've now got this outsider complex really to the yeah. community which you were all part of totally. and he, I'm, i believe he was the one that was really badly abused sexually yeah. was he yeah, yeah. yeah. And, right. and that it was just sort of totally ignored by yeah. the community in some degree um yeah you know and i'm sure stuff like that does get really unanswered because they have their own police force too i mean they're almost like a law upon themselves right yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, their own ambulance service you know and yeah, education, like, yeah. everything. Yeah, everything is is run, or sought to be run by the community as much as possible. Yeah, to try and avoid the outside influence. Um, yeah. and you also with the the girl, the woman in the series, you see that her joining like this, like kind of AA meeting for ex, you know, ex members, and there right. there's a huge stigma associated with the meeting. Like it's almost like you know some horrible <laughs> entity. Yeah, you know, like seen as evil and, and the, yeah, the shame those, of even attending the meetings. Yeah, so these organisations would actually help ex-members um, 
integrate into the world after they've left and that's what they're entirely set up for um yeah. and then yeah if you have any contact with those organizations that's real bad because it shows that you're considering to go um yeah. and that was her move that was wrong compared to Deborah's, which was going down the legal route and then doing it all herself because it wasn't clear what she was doing at that point and by the time she'd written the book it was out she'd left it was too late and the community really couldn't do anything about it yeah, and she made it such. She needed to make it so sens- sensationalized that then yeah. they wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and you, and it's funny too that the that their outrage, she says in the in the interview, really fueled the success of of the story yeah. because they yeah. were so um, sort of upset about it. And then that brought so much controversy that people were like, oh, I wonder how bad it is. And a lot more people yeah. read it too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's funny. <laughs> so kind of worked against them. Um, yeah. And. Yeah. Yeah, and I think her finding those contacts, I mean, I thought it was impressive that her husband would even let her go and, and study at all, to be honest. I was quite mm. surprised, even in that, even though she said she was doing a bookkeeping degree, because in, in the um, Netflix series and also in One of Us, I definitely got the feeling that you couldn't do any sort of tertiary education, although that might be wrong. I don't know. Uh, no, mate, basically you're not. You're not meant to and you're not allowed to, but... Families on the edge may break rules and that's, mm. but you have to do it in secret. Like, you know, you can't let the whole community know that, Hey, I'm going to uni. <laughs> it's, mm. That's not done. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was pretty impressive that too. Like, and, and I think he was, she says in the interview that he was a little bit different too. Like he, he wasn't like he could have a proper conversation and, and stuff like that. A bit more yes. Yes. kind of liberal in the kind of sense that, still not liberal at all but you know like in the rules of the community um yeah but yeah i i thought the netflix series was really really good i definitely recommend it um it's pretty intense but yeah it's really really great and i also recommend watching the documentary and listening to the interview and doing all three because it's quite a nice little trip ditch of um ultra orthodox judaism yeah yeah community which is not spoken about as much um I agree. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the recent interest. Maybe just Deborah's book. Um, I mean, but one of us was already out. Like, I wonder what the. Yeah, one of us came before the series, but after the book, and then there's been other books and then other documentaries prior to that as well, um, and through Vice and stuff. So, uh, Unorthodox is is you know a big hit. Like Jody's heard about the series, so it's, it's out there in the community. Lots of people are watching it and everything. Um, yeah, so, um, I think that that sparked a lot of interest. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, there has been an interest in recent years of these sects and, and, um, NRMs or new religious movements, which are actually conservative, um, movements, not just, uh, thinking that there's aliens that created all of us or, yeah whatever yeah. um yeah so it's, it's interesting mm, yeah. that's true i'd love to be able to go and visit but they probably don't take very kindly to academics coming and poking their heads around no <laughs> most of those no, communities no, wouldn't no, really no. want that but um uh, yeah i definitely recommend checking those out and probably reading the book i probably won't get around to it but i'm sure the book's really good as well yeah yeah for sure cool um anything else that is it, I think, on ultra orthodoxy. I hope we record again sooner than last time. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. so we'll talk about what we want to do, um, and then yeah, hopefully we get more listeners next time. Um, anything else from you? No, but just thanks for our three or four listeners that are <laughs> staying in, and I, <laughs> I, we've I could probably more than name three or four. <laughs> Oh, we've no, got three we or four, that, four that request. Yes. Our true fans. Um, yeah. So just a shout out to Tom, to Mark, to Carol, to my friend Kate, who's apparently been listening again. Um, and, you know, our families for sticking with it. Our family. Um, Your family. My family. Yeah. My family um, don't know anything that I do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, <clears throat> I was going to say something funny about wearing face masks, but I can't think of anything funny. I don't know. It's intense out there, so stay safe. Um, You Victorians especially, hopefully. What's this? uh, The Victoria? Well, there's been a spike there or something. 
you didn't know yeah there's like i think 17 cases when i last checked and there's various <laughs> hot spots i know it doesn't seem like very many so but you look at it like the u.s you go yeah yeah there's about <laughs> four thousand cases today five thousand yeah <laughs> i know but yeah you know i feel like it's always going to be something that where we we've, we've erred on the side of caution hmm. it's better than not i stand by that even if it seems extreme sometimes yeah yeah i i agree i think we did the right um despite the economic costs and, and social costs it's and the, um, and the game traders costs <laughs> yeah yeah personal personal ones yes um despite all that yeah. i think that's the right decision yeah i, I did not want anyone to lose their family like that so, yeah no exactly um and yeah we'll hopefully chat soon thanks everybody um yeah take care bye bye